Hello and welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. Glad you could join me. Uh, in light of the holidays, I wanted to put out a Head on History special as a break from the kind of normal episode and, and a kind of fun edition. Uh, for those of you who've been following along, Head on History specials are basically random episodes that involve me tackling either a current event issue from a historical perspective. Um, in the future, I'll try to bring you some interviews with famous historians uh, to the Head on History specials, but they'll they'll break apart the normal flow of the uh, seasons and they'll they'll come on during off seasons and there'll be all sorts of random they're just kind of random episodes that will interject here and there as a nice kind of break to the flow um, but to get us started i wanted to give a couple shout outs first to uh, jenny on twitter who uh, hopefully is listening uh, as she asked about a few possible future episodes on islam and africa we've definitely got you covered and thank you for listening uh, season three so the next season after this after we've established some of the major things thematic elements uh, focusing on the division of the Sunni and Shia, the development of the intellectual history of of Islam, uh, that is, the sort of uh, the theology and the philosophy behind it. Once we've established that um, in season two, in season three, we're going to take a much closer kind of granular look at the developments of uh, local expressions of Islam. So we'll be looking at what I call the other Islam. So Islam in South Asia, Central Asia, uh, Islam in Africa, the way in which Muslims practice their religion that blended uh, with indigenous and local traditions. Uh, so we'll be looking at a much more kind of cultural history of Islam. We'll move away from the intellectual history and do much more kind of cultural history so hopefully that'll be interesting for you so so keep tuning in and thank you for listening um also a, a shout out for to my friend lisa for her awesome feedback uh, she got a chance to hear a preview of the episode and was super helpful to her so i promised i'd give her a shout out there you go lisa your podcast famous now um as always if you'd like to support this podcast you can leave a review with itunes uh you can use your podcast app i'd love to hear what you say and whenever we get more reviews it uh it helps to increase the 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 views that we have um and people get come stumble across the podcast and that would be fantastic i also love the feedback that i get you can also get a hold of me via social media at aaolmi or using the hashtag head on history all right now that we've got all that administrative out of the way what i call the administrative work whenever i teach a class let's talk about what this special episode is going to be it's going to be about islam muslims and christmas that's right you heard right i said christmas you would think that these things have nothing to do with each other but every year, Muslim social media um, is abuzz with the question, should Muslims celebrate Christmas? And uh, my friends on Facebook and Twitter uh, constantly debate back and forth. You have some of my friends very proudly putting up their Christmas trees and uh, doing secret Santas and doing all sorts of things. And you have other friends, uh, very devout Muslim friends, that, that are kind of are perplexed by this. And they go, well, why? Why should we celebrate Christmas? Is this uh, an Amer is this a bunch of you know Muslims in America that have kind of adopted an American tradition, or or are they you know trying so hard to be something other than Muslim? What is the reason 
why people are interested in Christmas. Is there a, a history there? Is there a story, a relationship between Muslims and Christmas? Well, that's what this episode is going to be about. I am going to treat this like I always do, just as a reminder. This is not the pulpit. This is not me sitting up here issuing fatwas, telling people what they need to do or what they should to be do. Instead, I'm a scholar. I'm a historian. So this is a classroom. My job is not to tell you what you should or you shouldn't do, whether Muslims should or shouldn't be celebrating Christmas, but rather to highlight and to educate uh, history. And that history is a very real one. And the fact is that festivals and holidays and spaces are almost always throughout history shared. And this may come as kind of a shock. The modern world is fixated on purity. As a result of kind of nationalism and in nation states, we start to view identity through the lens of the nation state, which is much more fixed um, and bounded by boundaries. And as a result, we tend to think things in terms of purely this and purely that. This is an American holiday. This is a Christian holiday. This is a Muslim holiday. And they see these things as kind of separate and less intermingled Whereas the pre-modern world is far more complicated than that. I mean, I think there is an, there's a trend now towards complicating it more and more as we see identity as fluid. But in the pre-modern world, identity was never quite fixed. Uh, and this is most evident even in the fact that imperial borders were never fixed. They were constantly in flux. Territories, whole territories and buffer zones that were uh, part of one empire or the other and switched hands regularly. Uh, for those that study the ancient Near East, uh, the region of our Armenia and Georgia in particular are examples of the Holy Land is another example of this, of constantly moving between empires back and forth. And as a result of this kind of reality, that, that identities weren't fixed, that identities were never as solid, there was a lot of permeability and movement between different religious communities. And festivals and holidays in particular, along with sacred spaces, were almost always shared. For example, uh, harvest festivals in Anatolia and the Holy Land were shared holidays. Uh, the planting of the grape seeds, uh, the rainy seasons, and the harvest corresponded both to the festivals of St. George and St. Barbara, and they were celebrated by Muslims and Christians together. So this was this moment in when Christians would be celebrating saints, literal holy saints, that is St. George and St. Barbara, but Muslims would be celebrating alongside with them, and they would do so vis-a-vis -vis, uh, feasts and music and the lighting of candles or oil lamps. And that was a very popular practice, that both Muslims and Christians would welcome the, the kind of seasons by the planting of the grape seed, the rainy season, and the harvest of it by honoring these saints. Now you'd go, how? How on earth would Christians, how on earth would Muslims, I, I should say, uh, celebrate these saints? St. George, St. Barbara, these are Catholic saints. Well, that's because they didn't see them as uniquely separate from Islam. They saw it as a part of shared history of a in the local region. And this was only local to uh, the Levant, mainly the Holy Land and Anatolia. You didn't see, for example, festivals for St. George in the wider Muslim population over in Baghdad, let's say, or Bukhara, or in Africa. But it's a, it's a reminder of how the lived experiences of Muslims and Christians were shared, um, and how they overlapped with one another. Uh, Jerusalem 
album in particular really highlights this kind of shared heritage. In our last Head on History special, which was a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the history of Jerusalem came to be sacred and why it was shared, how that sacredness developed over time. Um, and once more, we're going to kind of dive into that history to see how that shared and overlapping um, ties into festivals. A pilgrimage to Jerusalem is a great example of this kind of shared festival. The very idea of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem comes from, from sharing holy spaces and rituals. Pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Muslims and in Islam was not a particularly common practice until the era of, of Khalif Abdul Malik, which is in the uh, 8th century. Abdul Malik was the, the fifth Khalif and he started his reign um, in the 600s of the 7th century and extended into the 8th. According to Yaqubi, who was an 11th century, uh, 10th or 11th century uh, historian, Iraqi historian, um, at the time of Abdul Malik, there was a fitna going on, and Ibn, Ibn al-Zubair had actually seized control of, of Mecca. And so Abdul Malik proposed Jerusalem, not necessarily as an alternative, but as an additional place of pilgrimage, because the, pilgrimage, the, pil uh, the pilgrims were moving through the area and having to enter into uh, Ibn al-Zubair's uh, domain. And there was a fear that it would, one, justify this kind of rival to Khalif Abdul Malik, but also be a threat to uh, the pilgrims themselves. And so there was these a series of literatures that were produced that we talked about in the past, Faidal uh, al-Quds, and in it they would praise Jerusalem, talk about how important Jerusalem is. And I'm going to read a little bit from, from those just so you can see what the Faidal al-Quds is like. The Faidal al-Quds also were a prominent feature during the era of Salahuddin, so we're talking about the 11th century. So there's two particular moments in Muslim history, in Islamic history, where we see Jerusalem really emerge in the imagination of Muslims. And we talked about this when we when we discussed Jerusalem in our, spe in our last special. And the Faidal al-Quds was first used by Abdul Malik to raise the esteem of Jerusalem, and then used later by Imad al-Din Zengi and uh, Salah al-Din in the 11th century to really rally the troops in order to defend Jerusalem or recapture Jerusalem from the Crusaders. So here's an example of this. You, you had these, these writings um, which collected both hadiths and poetry and put them together in kind of a singular place or edition so that people could find them. Uh, for example, you would find it is related by Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As that he said, I heard the apostle of God say that prayer in Jerusalem is better than a thousand prayers elsewhere except in the sacred mosque in Mecca and this my mosque Medina. On the authority of Abu Daraba, it is related that the Prophet that he said the merits of prayer in the sacred mosque in Jerusalem exceed all except by a hundred thousand prayers, and my mosque in Medina by a thousand prayers, and in the holy temple in Jerusalem by five hundred prayers. So you could see the sort of rankings that that's happening. That Mecca. Uh, was the where you would get the most prayers, then Medina, then uh, Jerusalem. So you see the kind of hierarchy of importance and sacredness in that kind of uh, relation. And then you have uh, another one. On the authority of Abu Huraira, it is related that the apostle of God said that whoever prays in Jerusalem, all his guilt is forgiven him. So you see that there is this really conscious uh, attempt to talk about Jerusalem and the importance of Jerusalem, not just from 
from a geopolitical point of view, but to give it religious significance. And so the hadiths play a very important role, and the hadiths are the sayings of Muhammad. And they would be collected and put forth as sort of rationalization. Here you would see Abdul Malik or Salahuddin use these hadiths to justify the importance of Jerusalem, going, oh, this is why we need to defend it, or this is why we need to build the Dome of the Rock, or whatever, because Khalif Abdul Malik is the one that completes the Dome of the Rock. Why would you build the shrine in Jerusalem? Well, because of this. And you have uh, other ones. Uh, on the authority of Hassan al-Basri, it is related. Whoever gives alms in Jerusalem to the value of a dirham, it is the ransom from the fire of hell. He who gives alms to the value of a loaf of bread in Jerusalem, he has one he is as one who gives alms everywhere to the value of a mountain of gold. So if you were to give charity in Jerusalem, even if you were to give to the poor, it would save you from uh, your, your punishment. It would save you from hellfire. And it would be as if you were giving food to the hungry. This was all part of making Jerusalem important. But the shared history of Jerusalem, you know, the, the kind of mm, the, the overlapping of it and its festival and the festivals there are what we we really want to highlight. So the Fadl al-Qud give us an example, a kind of way in understanding how the, the religious justifications for importance came about, but the lived realities are also just as important. So take, for example, uh, this sacred space known as the Dome of the Chain. Now this is in the eastern uh, point of the Haram. So on, on the kind of sacred mountain, if you will, or the sacred mount where the Temple Mount is and where the Dome of the Rock and the uh, the Masjid al-Aqsa or the Aqsa Mosque is today, um, there is a part in the eastern, a small dome, a shrine, known as the Dome of the Chain. And this is actually associated with King Solomon. It's believed that this is where Solomon himself sat on his throne and issued judgment, and who in the end of days will continue to issue judgment. It was built uh, by Abdul Malik in 691 CE. It also happens to be the site where St. James was martyred. Um, and it was even briefly turned into a shrine by, uh, during the Crusades called the Templum Domini, and then it was reconverted back into a dome. But here it is, a place that is sacred to Jews, this is where Solomon sat, a place sacred to Christians, where St. James was martyred, and a place sacred to Muslims. And we would find that Muslims, Jews, and Christians would go to the dome of the chain, and they would pray together, and they would light candles together. Christians to uh, St. James, uh, Muslims to honor King Solomon, and Jews to King Solomon. Similarly, on the Dome of, or on the Haram, there are also two specific areas that are associated as with Christian pilgrims. Christians would come to this area to honor Mary and Jesus, and they became important in the Muslim imagination as well. You had what's known as the Oratory of Mary, or the Mihrab Maryam, and the cradle of Jesus, or the Mahad Isa. Both of these are associated with Mary and Christ, and they were important pilgrimage sites for Christians. Christians would come to venerate Christ, they would light a candle, they would say their prayers. This was part of the movement, because Jerusalem's pilgrimage sites aren't just stationary, but they're dynamic. You move through Jerusalem as, people, as a sort of blood moves through the body. Individuals didn't just, you know, 
take a trip to Jerusalem. They then entered Jerusalem through specific gates, the Eastern Gate, for example, or the Golden Gate, which was believed to be where the Shekinah of God or the Ark of the Covenant came through. You would enter through that gate. Uh, for those of you who know Arabic, Shekinah should sound familiar. Shekinah is the Hebrew word for the presence of God or the Holy Spirit or the Holy Presence of God. Um, in Arabic, it's Sakinah. Right? Similar words. But that gate, that holiness of the gate, you move through that and you would move to pilgrimage sites like the Mihrab Maryam, the Oratory of Maryam, um, or the Cradle of Jesus, Mad Isa. Um, and for Christians and Muslims that they were making these pilgrimages, these sites were about prayer, they were about reflection, they were about meditation, they were about being in the presence of. Of sacredness. These festivals and these pilgrimage sites weren't just separate rituals. It was not like this is your Christian thing and this is your Muslim thing, but actually it was shared. Even the holiest of holidays overlapped with one another and were seen as communal events. So take it during the time of Ramadan. Local Christians would be the ones who would actually wake Muslims up for the pre-fast meal. Muslims would try to wake up before the coming of the dawn for uh, suhoor or sari, some people call it. For suhoor, which is a pre-fast meal, it's usually a kind of moment where in a <laughs> sleepy days they wake up in a panic and try to shove as much food and water down their throats in order to stay, you know, stave off hunger uh, during the the fasting month of Ramadan. Well, it was actually Christians who would wake people up, and so in Jerusalem and other places, in particular Jerusalem, um, as well as Damascus in. Uh, uh, Turkey, in places like Istanbul, uh, when it was eventually captured, Istanbul, Christians would wake up and use either a bell or a drum to walk through the streets and wake up Muslims, reminding them, oh, suhoor has come, wake up and eat. And patriarchs would regularly call for a day of fasting and solidarity. So while Muslims pray, fasted 30 days uh, for Ramadan, Christians would fast one of those days to participate in Ramadan as solidarity with their Muslim brothers. And they would also put on feasts. Many of the suhoors would be eaten with their Christian brothers. Similarly, during Christmas, uh, the holy day for Christians, Muslims would throw feasts for their Christian neighbors. See, that wherever there was a community, whenever there was communal interaction, these holidays overlapped with one another and weren't seen as entirely separate, but seen as um, shared, seen as kind of sacred universally and participated in, in, in such a way. And this isn't just ancient history. It's not just something that's done in the past, but uh, but it's something that, that still happens to this very day. Um, one of the most kind of famous examples of this is in Iraq. Uh, religious holidays in particular were an important way for Iraqis to unite after serious divisions and tensions, after the kind of disastrous Iraq war, the Iraq invasion of the United States, that really divided up a lot of these communities. Remember, the Jewish and Christian Iraqi community had been there for thousands upon thousands of years, living side by side with Muslims. And while certainly there were moments of tension, and we should never kind of erase histories of persecution or oppression, we should note those. Uh, we should also recognize that in this particular podcast, because we're talking about holidays, that those holidays were shared, that Iraqi Muslims would celebrate Christmas. 
They would show solidarity with Christians. That what they do, the Chaldean Catholic Church, for example, uh, announced a whole day of fasting during the holy month of Ramadan, um, so that all Iraqis would be united. And Iraqi Muslims would put on celebrations. They put up uh, tr trees and gave out gifts during the month of uh, during Christmas. This was done just recently, as early as 2016, last year, as a sign of Iraqis being united, irrespective of the kind of divisions brought about by war and tension. In rejection to that, uh, the patriarch of the Chaldean uh, Catholic Church said, for one day we will show solidarity with the fasting Muslims. They will pray for peace and stability in Iraq and the region, as well as for the consolidation of the culture of brotherhood, love, and coexistence. This was a, a complete, uh, this wasn't kind of a new thing that Iraqis were doing, but part of the ancient heritage, right? So we talked about Jerusalem, now we're talking about Iraq, the heartland of the Muslim world, where the Abbasid Caliphate had, you know, established itself for hundreds upon hundreds of years. Similarly, uh, during that same time period, uh, Hussein Shakir, a young Muslim man, uh, told uh, Al Monitor, which is the uh, news website, I headed with hundreds of young people to Our Lady of Salvation, Syria Catholic Church in Baghdad, and we lit candles in solidarity with the Christians and celebrated Christmas as an occasion for unity among Iraqis. This reflected the true image of Iraq and the young people around me believe in. So this is talking about using the holidays, Ramadan and uh, Christmas, to bring all Iraqis together. Hussein Shankar, here he is, a Muslim man, going to Our Lady of Salvation, a Syriac Catholic Church. And it is a Syriac Catholic Church that's been in Baghdad for years, for centuries. And it's been a sacred site for both. And this is part of the history of Iraq, right? Again, like the Holy Land, you have these shared histories. One of the most famous shrines and mosques in Iraq is the Mosque of Prophet Yunus, or the Tome of Jonah. The Tome of Jonah was built um, quite early on. It was believed to be one of the older Umayyad mosques, probably from about 640-ish, around 640-ish. It was unfortunately destroyed by Daesh, uh, the uh, so-called Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, in 2014. But it was believed to be the place where um, Jonah was buried, and Jonah, uh, you know, the, there's a sort of mound uh, in Nineveh, and the mosque kind of rose up around it, and surrounded it, and enshrined it, and it was a place in which people would go and pray, and it was holy for both Christians and and it was holy for Muslims, because Jonah was a shared figure. Jonah, or Yunus in the Qur'an, was a prophetic figure. And even though it was a mosque, Christians would go and pray in that mosque. And so you'd see prayers that would happen um, on Fridays for Muslims and on Sundays for Christians. And this is similar in Damascus. The great uh, Umayyad mosque in Damascus was the same thing, where Fridays they would carry out uh, Muslim prayers, uh, the Salat al-Jamat, right, the Friday prayers, and Sunday would carry out Christian prayers or Mass. Uh, or to return back to, to Iraq, one of the more famous uh, mosques that was also unfortunately destroyed quite re recently was the mosque of Jerjes. 
Now, Georges is St. George. Remember, we talked about St. George at the beginning of this episode as being one of the festivals that Muslims participated in Anatolia and the Holy Land during the uh, fest, during the harvesting of the grapes. Well, in Iraq as well, Georges, a Catholic saint, a very famous Catholic saint, was seen as a Muslim holy figure. He had his own mosque, the Mosque of Jerjes. Now, these are, these are things that people forget. These are things that people don't know about. They go, what? There's a Mosque of St. George? There is. St. George, that's right. The George, St. George that slayed the dragon happens to appear in Islam, and he has one of the more uh, important mosques in Iraq. We have uh, whole histories written about it. Uh, the famous explorer Ibn Jubair mentions it in the 12th-13th century um, and talks about this beautiful mosque known as the Mosque of Jerjes. It was unfortunately destroyed by Daesh in 2014 along with uh, the Tome of Yunus. But here again, a very prime example of how both spaces and holidays were shared. The Holy Day of St. George was both a festival day for Christians and a festival day for Muslims. They participated side by side with one another, not parallel and separate as different communities doing their own thing. Oh, this is an Islamic holiday. Oh, this is a Muslim holiday. But no, seeing that holiday as part of a shared inheritance, that is part of a history in which both of these communities came together and lived side by side and celebrated a, a christian saint having a muslim mosque having candles and prayers said to him in the christian liturgical tongue and in the muslim liturgical tongue people united in their faiths and this was common throughout much of the Muslim world, that Muslims and Christians often shared certain holidays. That didn't mean that um, every single Muslim out there celebrated Christmas or that every Christian celebrated Ramadan. No, but there was a lot of communal interaction and seeing of these holidays as, uh, as sacred for their own reasons and celebration that was shared. Um, so there was, there was intermingling and there was a lot of precedent for people um, celebrating with one another and sharing with one another and sharing of the kind of joy. Uh, we see it in Iran in particular, which had a very long tradition of uh, you know, working with the, the Christian community and the Jewish community there, even after the, uh, the Iranian revolution or what we would call the Islamic revolution of 1979, in which the new regime did suppress the Christian community quite violently at first. Later on, we find that uh, there was an attempt to kind of re to fix those relationships. So, for example, Ayatollah Al Ali Khamenei, the the supreme leader of Iran, yearly visits uh, Christians during their during the Christmas, um, and you'll find pictures of him by. Uh, big statues of, of Santa Claus and uh, Christmas trees. For example, last year he visited the house of Robert Lazar uh, or the relatives of Robert Lazar. He was a man who was killed during the uh, Islamic revolution in, in the 1970s. Um, and he visited the family and they, were, they saw this not as a kind of, oh, you know, I'm going to see the Christians, but as, oh, we're just one people celebrating this home. And, and Christmas is kind of a big deal in Iran and a lot of Iranian Muslims who are devoutly Shia uh, celebrate Christmas or will put up Christmas trees. Go and you can see the, a lot of beautiful pictures on social media right now because they see it as a shared heritage. And in particular, because Shia 
Islam has a, a long tradition of being marginalized in uh, the broader Muslim spaces, they often found themselves uh, with allies in the Christian community and the Jewish community. And so there's a lot of overlap there. Now, this overlap and the sharing doesn't mean that it was always hunky-dory and everyone was uh, getting along and it was all peaceful. No, there were times of oppression and times when these festivals turned to violence, where pilgrimages suddenly turned on one another. Quite famously, we have the raising of the Anastasis Church or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre um, that's done by the Fatimid Khalifs. Um, that they just kind of, you know, this mad guy decides to raise the, the church and it ends up with the intercommunal violence where these communities fight and argue and break out into riots. And that history is very real and it exists and it's something that we should acknowledge. But in light of the holiday kind of spirit, it's also important to recognize that those were exceptions, that those were rare and far uh, in between. They didn't happen frequently. That the larger kind of trend in history was people working alongside one another, celebrating alongside one another, seeing each other's holidays not as part of kind of separate identities, but seeing as how these identities intermingled one another. Christians seeing Muslims and Muslims seeing Christians in a sort of fraternal light, seeing one another as part of the same region, the same peoples, having the same kind of concerns. Oh, are the grapes going to be a good harvest this year or not? Are we going to have enough food this year or not? And then celebrating the joys together, whether it was Christians who would celebrate Ramadan by fasting a day in solidarity, or helping Muslims by waking them up for the pre-dawn meals, or putting on feasts, or whether it was Muslims that would celebrate Christmas by giving out gifts and, place, and putting on feasts, or even visiting Christian churches, going to a Christian church, right, as we talked about um, in the case of Iraq, visiting uh, the Syriac church, that is a very common historical practice that has been done for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, or visiting sh churches and mosques that weren't separate but actually shared, like the mosque of uh, George, right? A Christian saint who had a Muslim mosque. And, of course, seeing Christmas as not a uniquely Christian holiday, but as a holiday that was kind of celebrating the joy of Christ altogether. Even though Christmas, you know, is a much is fixed as December is really a, a Roman invention more than a Christian invention, it becomes common practice amongst the Muslim world. So this is just a short history, a bit of fun to look at this holiday and see how holidays interact with one another, how Muslims and Christians viewed one another, how they often shared. Again, this is not meant to be a bully pulpit. It's not meant to be the preacher's mihrab. I'm not here giving out fatwas or telling people what they should be doing for the holidays, but just a fun little reminder to us that there are more things that bring us together than they are that divide us, and that history is a fantastic way of remembering our shared past. So anyways, I wanted to uh, end there and thank you all for listening. Hopefully you had a wonderful holiday. Uh, Merry Christmas to all those who celebrate um, and happy holidays to everyone else. Um, uh, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast and we'll be, be back to our regular uh, podcast episodes next week. And on that note, remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.